I'm podcasting full this week. I did Ruby Rogues yesterday. Oh, nice. Doing this today. And then, have you ever heard of Make Better Software blog? Uh, no. It's, it's evidently run by Fog Creek, but I'm doing that tomorrow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Very exciting development at the, on the home front. I just got a very important message that my son has pooped on the potty. <laughs> uh, this is the show. Okay. Parent, parenting, parenthood sounds exciting. Yeah. Full of adventure. Yeah. I mean, he's 16, so it's a good thing. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Uh, so you've been playing with Rust, converting this I thing been to playing Rust. With Rust. Converting yes. your augmented reality engine to Rust. I haven't actually moved the augmented reality stuff over yet, just the 3D rendering engine. The augmented reality stuff, I'm not sure if I could or if I'd want to because uh, Vuforia, which is the library that we're using uh, for a lot of the AR, is a C++ library. And Rust has a really good uh, C interop story. And it has a non-existent C++ interop story. So I could theoretically, depending on the number of functions that I do or methods I do need to end up calling, I could just wrap all of the C++ calls in an equivalent C call that just takes this as a pointer. Right. Um, so then, but, and then wrap that in Rust. <laughs> and then wrap that in Rust, exactly. Uh, well, or I just call to the C functions from Rust. So why are you interested in Rust? Like, I remember the first time I heard about Rust was like years ago when they did their first public release. And I, I remember, I can't remember where I read the headline, but I, I distinctly remember commenting like, Rust? Why did they call it Rust? Like, what? <laughs> Who is going to use this? And it was like, it was Mozilla at a time when like Mozilla was not at its best. So it was just kind of like, what are, the, what are they doing over there? Right. So what is it that attracted you to uh, use a language named Rust? Okay, well, I mean, there's a couple of main things. The guarantee of memory safety is huge. The fact that it's actually type safe is huge. And the fact that there's no garbage collection. Okay, so let's back up, take those. So you said memory safe. So right. you, that just, you just mean you're not going to get a buffer overrun? Uh, yeah, basically. You, you, can't, you, you can do raw pointer arithmetic if you absolutely need to, but you have to, to do memory on things that the compiler cannot at compile time guarantee are memory safe you have to explicitly demarcate that code as unsafe. Uh, yes, so the I'm idea being Rust should never seg fault. Okay. So that was the first thing, memory safety. The second thing was... Well, and it's actually more than memory safety, too. It, it, it's true of any kind of resource. So you never have to worry about closing file handles, for example. Because what it actually does is it ties destructors to, with one exception that they're trying to figure out how to solve right now, uh, that destructors are guaranteed to be run um, based on lexical scoping. So when a, you basically when a variable goes out of scope and you can no longer use it, it runs its destructor, and that's where you just free up any resources that you would have allocated, which will include any mem- which you know memory is a resource, but sockets, file handles. So like the equivalent in Ruby would be like we always have to try and remember to use like the block format of opening a file so that it gets closed automatically. Now you don't have to worry about that when it goes out of scope, it's going to close for you. Right, um, and then. This all also leads into its mutability story as well, because every language is trying to solve the problem of shared mutable state, right? Mm-hmm. And the common solution is to eliminate mutability. Uh, that's what Haskell does. That's what Clojure does. That's what Scala does. Um, that's what Rust kind of does, but but really what it tries to do is it uh, instead eliminates sharing. 
So you can mutate whatever the hell you want as long as you are the only person who has a reference to it. Okay. And then if, and if it's immutable, as many things can borrow it at the same time. So what are the dangers? And like that seems more flexible. What are the dan- Why would other languages not do that, right? Because it, tra- it requires tracking who has reference to what. Is that like a... Well, and when you mutate something, you might change the size of it, which would mean that uh, the pointer right. moves in memory. And so then uh, whatever was trying to read it, the old uh, pointer now has a dangling pointer problem. Okay. All right. And then did you mention types? You mentioned types, right? Yes. So how strictly are we talking here? So on the scale of like Ruby, we have, well, I mean, everything's object, right? And then I... you have Haskell, which I th- is, to my knowledge, like at least what I've used, the strictest. Right. Where along that are we? <laughs> and there's things um, in the middle, like Java, probably somewhere like right smack in the middle, maybe, yeah, probably maybe in the middle. I mean, anything that just ha- let, lets you do an arbitrary cast that can fail at runtime, I would not qualify as type safe. So that okay. immediately eliminates Java, especially anything that does implicit conversions. So anything that will just convert from a int to a short and like you don't have to do anything explicitly there. So I guess actually we're, I'm, I'm now conflating strong versus weak typing as well as uh, yeah, static think versus dynamic. That's kind of what I was... I was actually leaning more towards strong and weak, so... It's, yeah, I was complaining all of this. It's strong, static, yeah. but not the strongest static. Or is it... It's up there with Haskell. <laughs> okay. Interesting. And then just like Haskell, there is a unsafe coerce function, uh, though in, in uh, Rust, right? Same thing. The function doesn't have unsafe in the name, it's just marked as unsafe, and the language will not let you call it inside of safe code. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So how has your experience been writing the 3D rendering stuff with Rust? It's been, it's been pretty okay. Um, I mean, it, so there's a few places where I'm, I've started to encounter issues with it, and they're actually ironically similar places where when I've tried to do game engine type stuff in Haskell, uh, I've felt a little bit of pain. Basically, Rust... It kind of fakes object orientation, and it's somewhere between Go's object model and Haskell's type classes, where you're defining traits for everything, and you and you define implementations for those. And if you want to take uh, something generically, you just add a type. Uh, it's a you make a polymorphic function with a type bound. Well, that's exactly Haskell, right? Um, and then the same things apply though. So because this is stating behavior that you can uh, perform on a data structure, not behavior of the data structure itself. Basically, because we're in a language where there are pass-by-reference versus pass-by-value semantics, mm-hmm. or pointers versus non-pointers, rather, um, you can't just have an arbitrary array of some interface like you would be able to in Ruby or in Java, right? Now, there's, there are ways around it, and it basically involves... It's actually surprisingly easy in the language, too, if you want to have dynamic dispatch, uh, to have an, basically a thing that wraps it up. As soon as it becomes heap-allocated, then you're fine. Dynamic dispatch... Tell us what that is. <laughs> so basically the compiler has to, you, you, you literally keep a um, function table uh, and you look up at runtime where the function that you want to call is as opposed to the compi- at compile time where it's just known and it can be inlined or moved around and okay. it's not, it doesn't actually have to be associated with the thing. Okay. Interesting. And you had like, how's, have you liked writing this? I mean, better than C, I guess? Yeah. I mean, that's my alternative, right? Is right now it's C++ and... I felt like the process of porting it to Rust uh, made me a better C++ programmer. <laughs> Why is that? So I've got this one seg fault that I'm pretty sure is fixed now, but it is really hard to duplicate and therefore really hard to track down. 
But uh, what I found when I was porting it to Rust, because I tried to mimic more or less the data structures that I had in the C++ version, and uh, it showed me a few of the structures that I had that could not possibly be guaranteed to be safe. And one place in particular, I had a, I, um, it showed me that I, I could, like just after really looking at the code and, and knowing where the pro like why this problem existed, uh, when I was actually loading the files from the file system and loading that up to OpenGL, I did have one use after free bug that I would just lock out and not reuse that memory. So porting this over to Rust highlighted the unsafe areas and then you could look back at the C++ code and be like, oh, I see why now, like that kind yes. of thing. Okay. Exactly. So it taught you a lesson. <laughs> it definitely taught me a lesson. Um, there was another point I was going to make. I don't remember. <laughs> what was my third thing about the language? No garbage collection. Oh, yeah. Right, because that's the language people compare Rust to the most these days, I think, is Go. Okay. Because people think that they're sort of trying to target the same. They're both systems languages. Right. So I remember back when they announced that uh, Go was, they were going to start uh, supporting Android in the Go compiler. And there was like a week-long period where everyone was like, oh my god, everybody's going to start writing Android apps in Go. But really, that's not ever going to be the case because for your normal CRUD app, you're going to have to interface with the Java API. That's what the, uh, you know, the, the UI code, which is the majority of where you spend your time in mobile is writing UI code, and that's always going to be co going through the Java interface. And so the native story there isn't that great, unless you, a large portion of your app is just you have an OpenGL view, and you're just you know doing your own your, your own UI. You're just manually drawing things with uh, on the GPU wherever you need to, which basically limit limits it to this weird augmented reality thing that I'm doing and video games. And both of those you you have 16 milliseconds to accomplish whatever whatever you're going to accomplish. You need very, very consistent performance characteristics, and so having a garbage collector isn't is is not great there. So Go is garbage collected. Go is garbage collected. Yes. So what does Rust do to manage this? Things just go out of scope, and then they get cleaned up. Is that? Yeah, and then for things that need to be uh, have more complex lifetimes, you can have reference counting. Is it automated or? Yeah, you just wrap it in a type. It's called RC. There's two types. There's RC and, and ARC. Um, so reference counted and atomically reference counted. Uh, and you would use one versus the other depending on whether or not you're going to share this across multiple threads. Okay. Um, and then just whenever you need to take the value out, you call clone on it. And then that bumps up the reference count. And whenever, and whenever the reference guard that comes back out of that goes out of scope, that de decrements the reference count. Okay. And then when it gets to zero, it just cleans it up. Yeah, exactly. Um sharing between threads is something I, I feel like that's something i see a lot of in like rust tutorials is like because mm -hmm. now so you just said you're going to eliminate shared mutable state but you're still going to be able to share data between threads right so how does how's that what's the story there right so you wrap it in an arc so when you need to take it out you you know that bumps up the reference count and it's immutable at this point if you need a mutable version of it you have to wrap it in a mutex okay and that's the only way to get a mutable a mutable copy out of the uh the box basically it's a, it's a form of a box it's not, there's another thing in rust called a box which is just a heap allocated pointer but like all of these things are just ways that you wrap it up to say and i want these additional guarantees on it okay so you've really been liking this basically that's what i'm yeah, getting I'm, out of it i mean i mean it enforces what is considered to be a best practice in system in, in the systems world right if you're going to assume that you can't just uh, take the performance hits of having everything being immutable and having to copy memory all the time whenever you want to make any changes, right? This is just enforcing what would have otherwise been considered a best practice. 
So where do you think this is a good fit? Like what kind of things, like you mentioned, obviously things where you need like super predictable performance characteristics, like writing a game, right? It is a systems language. So whatever that means when you're doing systems programming, which to me has always been like, I don't know, what's what's the systems program? Anything that doesn't run on a web and on the web or have a UI? I don't like what... I mean, I think the easiest way to to describe that is anything you would have otherwise written in C or C++. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. So I do think Rust is actually is actually very pleasant to use, and I could see it for high level programming as well. I don't think I'm going to be tra- uh, advocating switching to that over Rails just yet. But like, if I had a little JSON API that needed to serve tens of thousands of requests a second, Rust might be a really good uh, a really good option for that. And then some of the other c- cases uh, that that are interesting, like the reason that Rust uh, is being used at Skylight, and the reason that servos the the Mozilla the reimplementation of Firefox in Rust. Um, that both of them chose it is because they both have use cases, not just where garbage collection is bad because performance characteristics, but because, where garbage collection is bad because they have to be hosted or, or host another language which has its own garbage collector. And once you have two garbage collectors uh, working with each other, things can get hairy. And that's why JRuby, for example, doesn't implement its own garbage collector, right? It just uses the JVM's garbage collection. And that just means that every Ruby object then has to be represented by a corresponding Java object and keeping, re- and keeping references and all that has to be done in a way that Java can see it. But for Skylight, they had to have some code that would in- introspect and uh, work within Ruby. Hmm. And then for Servo, right, this has to host JavaScript. And both of those cases, you're talking about other garbage collected languages and you don't want data races between those uh, between those two the interop level of those two languages causing havoc right i'm looking at like the home page here so i'm looking at like syntax of like the hello world program they have in here which isn't hello world but it strikes me as like it is the type of language where if you write c you're going to be comfortable in it but like it's got the it's got a couple annoyances that always bug me about languages where it's like the desire to save a few characters leads to things like printlin instead of like print line or like <laughs> Yeah, but it's, it's like, called print line in almost every language. Right, I know, but like if we're this is a new language, so like let's sure. let's be let's let's use words like let mute accumulator, which I assume is mutable accumulator, mm-hmm. but it's just mutt. Let mutt accumulator. Like no, mutable? Would that would that be like I don't know. These these are the things I look at when I first look at a language. Like, am I gonna like writing this? I could get used to those things. That's no big deal. As long as it's consi- if it's consistent. Like some of the things in Haskell, I can't remember off the top of my head. But I was like, why is this one abbreviated and the other one is the full word? Like, what? Can right. you like? And like in Ruby too. Like Ruby has unique UNIQ. It's like <laughs> everything yeah. else is a full word. What is what is this unique? doing here <laughs> well and then and then write uh def versus define method yeah sure i guess i never really Which thought actually about... is semantically different but yeah i never really thought of def as like obviously yeah that's true and I'm like this has, this has that's a little weird but print line like you have th- there's an article i read that was really cool about your weirdness budget mm. and so when you're making a new language you can only be so unless you just are really trying to go completely out there if you're looking to gain adoption you can only be so much different than what uh, your target audience is going to be used to i feel like the idea that's a really good idea we should find did you you said you read that somewhere yeah, I'll, I'll find, find the article and put that in the show notes, which will be at bikeshed.fm slash 23. Um, because I feel like that's a good idea for anything you're doing, not just writing a language, like implementing a new Rails app, implementing something, anything you're doing, right? 
you want to stay on the beaten path for most of the things you're doing and have like a little bit of a weirdness budget. You don't want to go buzzword crazy. You don't want to pull in everything you've seen somewhere or heard about on a podcast somewhere. <laughs> uh, you want to like do one or two things that are new. And that's, I, I feel like that's, that's easier for me to do now, like switching between projects a lot than it was when I was like on the same project for a while. Like somebody would throw a greenfield project in front of me at one of my old jobs and I'd be like, I'm gonna write this in Ruby. I'm gonna do Rails, I'm gonna do all I'm gonna do Hamel, I'm gonna do all these things, I'm gonna do coffee script, all these things that were like brand new at the time, right? <laughs> I gotta be on the bleeding edge of all of this stuff. And it was like I gotta learn first of all, I have to learn all these at one time. We have to learn how to deploy all of these. And uh, I have to like I can't be the only one who knows how to do this. Um, so I feel like those kinds of things are that, that the weirdness budget is broadly applicable to all projects and probably not just developing pro development projects either i really like that idea i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah. file that one weirdness budget got it <laughs> and uh one of the things that i've just noticed as i was using it there's just lots of little things that i find super delightful like um print line here right mm -hmm. that, so that's a macro that's what the bang at the end of it means and it's a macro that's going to ultimately end up calling the C function printf under the hood with a new line at the end. But rather than using printf format strings, you just use the, uh, the curly braces. And that's like, and insert the thing here. And you can put some additional stuff in there if you want to, if you want to be more specific. And one of the really uh, useful ones is right in Haskell, we have the show trait. And uh, the things that can go where those curly braces are are exactly the same as anything that has the, uh, uh, the show trait implemented. I think it's called, I think it might be called format present one of those in rust in rust okay um but there's a separate one called debug and so if you put a uh, colon and a question mark i don't know why those two characters but if you put a colon and a question mark inside of those curly braces it'll use the debug version instead uh and you can have the compiler just automatically derive the debug implementation for everything and just print basically print out your your entire your entire tree of whatever data structure you've got and have it pretty printed so it's a boon to puts debugging as we discussed before sure basically. yes exactly how um, is how is is there a debugger uh yeah it, i mean it uses the standard c api so uh gdb and all those standard tools work and you're writing this all in vim and have mm -hmm. i mean what would you need for tooling out of it basically uh the indentation is a little funky which i find is true of almost every new language these days okay yeah but, i mean it, it's weird because it looks like pretty standard c syntax yeah. Yeah, rules. Well, and this is one that's like it should. I know the plugin can't solve for it, but it's just not. Um, one of the things that Rust does it allows trailing commas basically everywhere, hmm. and I like trailing commas. I'm coming around. I for a long time I was anti-trailing comma, but I'm I'm coming around. Well, <laughs> good, and you should. And so then it's just right. Um, it can't just the editor can't just do its indentation based off of the whether or not there's the comma there. I mean, of course, it'll assume that you want to be indented, but then when it sees that you have the matching token of the thing uh, of the whatever the next level, it would be curly braces probably, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so then when it sees the closing curly brace, it, you know the the syntax indenter whatever the plugin term for that is <laughs> has to you know look for the matching pair and then be like, oh, okay, so I actually need to go back one indentation level, right? I feel like the like the YAML, the Vim YAML syntax highlighting is like a good example of that. Like you'll be typing, you'll be like, "What?" It thinks I'm like seven levels in. You hit a colon, it's like, <laughs> boom, you're all the way back out. You're like, "What just happened?" <laughs> it does a it does a halfway decent job at YAML, which is an important, which is basically an impossible thing to write these rules for. Absolutely, um, yeah. But what about and it's got uh, cargo 
right? Which was written by Yehuda, who wrote mm-hmm. Bundler, or was very much involved in Bundler. I don't know if we can give him all the credit for it or not. I think that's, yeah, I think Andre Arco is the one who, who gets most of the credit on Bundler. Okay. So it's got cargo, which I assume is going to be good because Bundler is good. Yeah. Well, it's a combination of, it's not just for dependency resolution, it's also your build tool. So it's, it's the combination of Bundler and Rake. So it's NPM. <laughs> yes, it's NPM, but not terrible. But it doesn't nest your dependencies? Right. Yay. Um, you know, everything's statically linked. So if you have dependency conflicts, you'll have dependency conflicts and you'll have to resolve them. That's such a preferable preferable method for me. <laughs> yeah, I would I'd rather it just be like I have to open a pull request to my other to the things that have transitive dependencies and have them fix whatever. Right, and temporarily I'll use my fork or whatever. But like one of the things, because like I'm, you know, so it does clearly have a macro system, and there's one macro that it has that I wish every language would have, and it's uh, includes string, and just takes the path of a file and uh, and it, it inserts the source of that file as a string, wherever the macro is invoked. Which if you're you know writing OpenGL code and you have to write these large shader programs, which normally you'd have to lose all syntax highlighting or editor assistance because you just have to type it as a giant string. <laughs> and so having, having uh, the, the compiler literally, you know, just be able to say, like, go look at this file, which has another extension, and just take that and put it here as a string. Yeah, that is and actually, that's really nice. I can think of, like, even just doing SQL, right? Having SQL, yeah. in, having SQL syntax highlighting in your SQL file, and then you, in, you import it into the, or just actually insert it, inline it into the file, or the compiler inlines it into the file for you. Exactly. would be super helpful. Yeah, so I can imagine writing OpenGL shaders as a few more lines than your standard SQL statement. But I yeah. don't know. I've seen some pretty hairy SQL. <laughs> That's true. Well, and, and my shaders don't get too bad because they're pretty straightforward and, you know, do exactly what I need them to do. But if you were to look at, for example, the shaders that Unity generates, which are 14,000 lines. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. It's Code School. Sean, have you used Code School before? I have, and I think it's great, and it's really popular with the Turing students. Yeah, I mean, it's super easy to, uh, to, I think the biggest thing really is it's super easy to get started, right? So, like, if you just want to kick the tires on Ruby or on SAS or on whatever, you're going to go to their website, you're going to find these great courses, and you're going to be able to just get running right away through a web REPL, which is basically just type it into the web, let it run, and it'll tell you whether or not you got things right or wrong. Um, And I think that's the lowest friction way to get started. I know, like, I find myself... Like when I'm trying to do something new, right, um, right? I often try and give myself excuses like, oh, I've got to like, if I'm going to sit down at my desk and do a lot of really important work that has to get done that I've been putting off, like the first thing I'm going to do is clean my desk, right? right. And that takes a half an hour. Um, so this is the same kind of thing. Like when you're getting into a programming language, you can get down into a, a, a rat hole about like, oh, how do I set this up locally? Which tools should I use? Oh, there's three different types of tools. Like, don't worry about any of that. Head right to code school, get right into one of their courses, start typing. It's going to work out great. No, and I think I think the structure really helps too. If you're if you're in the kind of uh, scenario where you know you could do exorcisms for something, but if you're really trying to learn a new technology, having the additional structure of their courses is really helpful. Yeah, and they've Plus got zombies, right? Yeah, there's zombies. So like, who doesn't love zombies? <laughs> there's all of the, so they have Rails for Zombies and then like uh, Rails for Zombies Part Two, but it's it's called something funner than that. But all of the courses have something like that going. They have like a cool little theme going, so they try and make it fun. So you're gonna kind of follow along. So there's all sorts of different courses you can check out. Wide array, like I said. Yeah, and actually we've got a little competition that we're running for them. If you leave us a review on iTunes, you can be eligible to win a free month of Code School. And we're going to be handing those out here in, what, the next month? Yeah, over the course of the next month sometime. So start leaving some reviews. We'll find a way to find you. And then we'll, uh, we'll give you the free month coupon. 
So join more than 1 million happy users and check out codeschool.com today. And uh, we thank them for sponsoring the bike shed. Um, I was just looking at the list here again, and we didn't talk about pattern matching. I, okay. That's my single favorite feature of Haskell probably is pattern matching. Yeah. Um, so it's got pattern matching, which is, I don't know, fantastic, I guess. That's just what I wanted to say. <laughs> Yes, uh, it's not at the function definition level like in Haskell. It's close to Scala or, or or Swift, where you just say match here, and then you give the cases. But that's really ultimately that just means you might have one more line in your in your function definition. Yeah. So why can you have if you have a function definition? So I'm looking at this example program here. So if you have if you have a function definition in Haskell that's using pattern matching, your patterns have to be exhaustive. Or they don't, maybe they don't have to be. Maybe they, maybe it's a warning. I can't remember. It's a warning. Um, and then one of the other ones that that, can, that I find frustrating is that, uh, there are cases, I believe, I could be wrong. I don't remember if, if there are cases where it's possible for the compiler to not be able to tell if it's exhaustive or not. And then I don't remember if the compiler warns you there. But it's definitely a warning in Haskell. So would this be, I'm looking at the syntax here, and you can just throw a match block basically inside of anything. Mm-hmm. If you want to match multiple things, you just wrap them in a tuple. Right. So does it have the same, like, if you if it didn't match, what happens? So it fails to compile if it's non-exhaustive. Oh, okay. So now it's an error. Okay. And, and it, then... It doesn't have scenarios where it can't tell if it's non-exhaustive? Did I'm not right? positive off the top of my head. And I think you can also add a pragma statement to tell the compiler to let you do your inexhaustive match, in which case it would panic at runtime. Rust only has monadic error handling or uh, like crash only. There's no exceptions. What's monadic error handling? So where you have a t- uh, where you represent in the type that this thing can fail. So you know, worst case, you wrap it in option, which is what Haskell or what Rust calls the maybe monad. Uh, and but then there's also a result type, which is either an okay or an error. All right, interesting. And then you would pattern match on that on your. Is that what exactly. you would do on the return? Yes, you'd, you'd pattern match on it exactly. Okay, I want to write some Rust now. I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also nice little helper things where you're able to say, like, this should never fail. And it will warn you, actually, also, if you if you unwrap the thing, but uh, or it'll fail to compile, rather, because you can actually tell the compiler the return value of this must be used. So, for example, if you um, are doing an I.O., and you're not, it's a, an I.O. statement that would return a unit or an empty tuple, so no return value, but it could still possibly fail. Like it would be reasonable to just ignore the return value of it. The compiler will fail to. Uh, you can you can set it up so it will. Your program will fail to compile if you don't use the re- result of it. And then there's just nice little helper methods on the result type to be able to say like this must have succeeded or crash my program with this error message uh, because I never expect this to fail. Okay, so you have to opt into that this behavior, basically. Right, so like you'd put on the function, you'd put a little uh, pragma statement that says uh, result must be used. I don't remember the the exact name of the of the pragma for it, and then and then that just means if that if you're not doing something with the with the return value of the function, it'll. Uh, so under what file. I'm confused as to why you would want to like why would I care as a function if somebody uses my return value or not? Because you are doing an I/O operation that could have failed. Right, and you and you do not have a way to raise an exception. And presumably, you would like them to be able to say, like, I don't care. You'd like to, you'd like to you allow them, your user right. to say, like, I don't care if this fails. Or you want them to be able to say, this should never fail, crash if it does. And you want them to do this explicitly. It kind of goes back to what we talked about in the episode a couple of episodes ago about, like, 
trying to have some sort of linter around say around calling save without call without checking its return value, right? Exactly. Like you could so, do that, but you probably didn't mean to, right? Like exactly. because <laughs> you're not going to like you're going to assume that this succeeded and not know that it failed because you never because there's save doesn't raise an exception, you need to check its return value to figure out if it actually succeeded or not. And of course it can still raise an exception with uh, like statement invalid and right. stuff that you would never realistically handle, but right. But that, and that's the whole thing, right? Is that if you can't, if you wouldn't expect anybody to realistically handle failure for something, then that that's what panic is for. But uh, yeah, but same thing here, right? Even if you just wanted to have save return a boolean, like true or false, I succeeded, you can you could then still have the compiler say, and they must use the result of this. Hmm. It can yeah. be a trivial, you know, that can be a trivial usage, but at the very least, if you're trying to circumvent that, you're aware of it. I started out not getting why you'd want to do that at all, and now I want I want this. <laughs> <laughs> So that was about a one-minute turn. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Type inference, um, which is nice, I guess. So you're not constantly, like, you don't have to say that something's a string if you're quite obviously setting it to a string. Right. You do have to explicitly state the type of uh, function arguments and return values, which, like, Haskell's the only language with type inference I know of that doesn't require that. There was actually a study done by, um, I don't remember what that language was, but they require, like, academic studies for any changes to the language. Do you know the one I'm talking about? I thought that was Haskell. <laughs> no, I mean, be, like, on the usability of the language. Oh, no. I don't know. Probably something in that family, though, based on the need to do academic studies. Yeah. But in the ML well, family or something. No, it's definitely it's definitely not a functional language. Oh, okay. it's, it's I don't remember. We'll, we'll find it. I'll link to it in the show notes. But they, I remember they, uh, when I was just reading about it, they did a study that showed that type inference makes people more productive, but um, having the parameters forced to be explicit in the uh, in the method signature also increases productivity more than more than allowing it to be inferred, which is why in even in Haskell where you can infer the types if you want to, it's considered the best practice to always list the type signature. Yeah, I think that makes sense because I I would generally when I was writing Haskell I would always try and write the type signature I wanted because it made it let me think about what I needed to take in and what I needed to get to right. Yep. versus just feeling it out. And I would oftentimes I'd have to just strip those out because I'd be like, these types aren't what I expect. Let me just remove right. these and see what the type of the function is. Oh, okay. Now it's telling me like I, I still want what I written what I'd written earlier, but now I know where I've gone wrong. That kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So. No, and I'll do that a lot here too. If I'm if I'm letting something be type inferred and the type of whatever I'm inferring is really complex. Um, I just do let unit equals whatever. Um, and you can do pattern matching in a let statement as well. And then you know it'll fail to compile, saying mismatch type, expected unit, and got whatever the inferred type signature is. And then one one that probably most Ruby developers won't care about, but is really really nice if you're coming from a language like uh, C plus plus or C, is it's almost impossible for Rust to implicitly copy memory. Almost impossible. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably an implicit uh, mem- memory copy that happens somewhere, but um, I know the la- that's part of the language's design is to make sure that you're always very explicit about whether you're passing a reference to something or whether you're copying the value. Because pass by value does literally mean copying the value, right. and if you're talking about a large enough value, then that, that can be very slow. So I've never written C before. When does this happen implicitly in C? Like, what's the difference between... Anytime you pass a struct by value. Okay. Or anything by value. So if you're not passing a pointer... Got it. Well, isn't and that a, pa- well? Never mind. I'm going to expose my <laughs> no. I mean, not knowledge of C is of course copying copying like the value of you know what what the pointer is, but that's a 32 bit or depending on your system a 64 bit integer as opposed to if you've got a struct with a size of three megabytes. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. 
And so, yeah, and, and that's and that's the whole thing is that only one thing, a value only has one owner in Rust. And other things can borrow it, and that's the closest thing that you'll usually have to pointers or references in C or C++. Um, so other things can borrow it, which is re- uh, represented by an ampersand in front of the type. And then if it's mutable, there's also the mute keyword in there. So you can have a mutable, you can borrow something mutably. And when you're borrowing it, um, if you borrowed it as mutable, the owner can no longer do stuff to it uh, until the person who's borrowing it has returned it by their reference going out of scope. And anytime you're not uh, borrowing something, either the ownership is moved to you or the memory has to be copied. And those are the only two uh, ways that that can ever happen. And you have to be explicit about the copying at that point. Like, it's not going to happen right. automatically for you. Right. The, so the, the default is uh, the ownership of the value is moved. And then you would have to call clone on it if you wanted to copy the memory. So if I try and access a value from a type without borrowing it, then I'm going to become the owner of that value? Is that what you just said? Uh, well, pr- presumably you're either the owner of the thing that you're accessing mm-hmm. or you're borrowing the thing that you're accessing. So okay. you would either, so it would just be based off of that. Okay. Um, but then, yeah, if you assign it to a lo- to a local variable, for example, then, uh, the thing that you just borrowed it, or the thing that you just took the reference off of, it would no longer be able to use it in its own functions and it would actually just, and it would even just fail to compile if you tried to. And that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. This is all enforced at compile time. And, uh, Oh, oh, and the compiler errors, man. This language has the most helpful compiler errors. And it's always got very succinct descriptions and it's saying maybe check here. And, if, and every single one has an error code and it and it's, uh, gives you type in Rust C help and this error code to get the full detailed explanation of what this error is, why the compiler is checking for it, what common things get you into, into these scenarios. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a really helpful compiler. Okay. How fast is the compiler? Not great. Okay. That is not that that is the probably the weakest part of the Rust story right now is that I mean it's not Scala slow, but um it's definitely not you know Go's whole thing is they have the super ridiculously fast compiler, and Rust C is not. Okay. But it's okay. It takes maybe ten fifteen seconds for me to compile my my little OpenGL thing. Okay, so if you're doing so with some of the safety that we've talked about, type safety. And the things that kind of force you to think about the semantics of your program so you don't make common errors, do you feel like you need to do as much test-driven development? Um, well, so A, I, like the things that I'm writing right now are inherently untestable, more or less. Um, right, because you're writing 3D rendering. like Yeah. You, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that's true of all statically typed languages. You still want tests, but yeah, I feel less uh, inclined like I would be in, uh, than I would be in Ruby to test every possible scenario I can think of, especially when we're talking about languages which don't have exceptions and don't have null. Right. It's, it, like, unless you're doing math, there's very little that you, you know, there's very few ways that you can write a program that successfully compiles in those cases and does the wrong thing. I mean, okay, maybe you not get just the, math, you, get the type you know what I mean? Right. Right. You, like your types would be wrong for, mo- for most mistakes. Yeah, you can concatenate your strings in the wrong order or do the wrong math or... Right, you know, do the wrong thing, assign the wrong value to whatever that is, happens to be of the same type. But but a lot of those types of errors are going to be the same types of errors you would make in your test as well. Right. So like, it's just going to be the kind of thing you see. Although, I mean, obviously, there's some good high level tests. I think would probably be useful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you definitely still want to write integration tests and follow based basic uh, test driven practices. I was just thinking, if like, if it takes you 15 seconds to compile, right? You're not going to like test driving something is going to be obnoxious. 
right? I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, in some, mm-hmm. in some instances, not too long ago, it was, you know, 10 seconds to start up a Rails app. So, right. Well, and just, and again, right, you might be test driving, but you, you might be writing fewer tests or feel the need to run them less often. Right. You might not feel the need to run them every time you change a line. Right. And I get that. I like, well, I think when I first started doing test driven development, I was like very much line by line. And now I take bigger steps. And then if you had a language that kind of helped you along the way, you would take bigger steps still, probably. And structuring your types uh, well can help with this a lot. As, uh, can help with this a lot too. Like for example, I actually learned something about a function that I should probably have known this about. There's a common linear algebra function called perspective, which ultimately is just another form of a frustrum, which just defines like the field of view of a camera. And the four arguments to it are the field of view, the the width of the field of view that is, uh, the aspect ratio, the near plane, and the far plane. Uh, so how close do you want to see th- be able to see things? How far away do you want to be able to see things? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the aspect ratio and how and, and how wide is it? And the common number that you put for the first argument is 45. You're not putting that because it's 45 degrees. You're putting that because it's actually an argument in radians. And 45, when you, mod- when you convert that to uh, degrees, modulo 360 is about 60 degrees, which is the field of view that you most commonly want. <laughs> so the uh, Rust uh, matrix library that I'm using has that function, but it doesn't take a float. It takes a angle, which will either be of type. It's an, it's an it's a enum or a, or a union type, and it'll either be radians or degrees but it's marked in the type system and you can't accidentally pass a value that you thought that because you thought it took degrees instead of radians and you can't accidentally pass the wrong one sure i mean this happens all the time when you're passing like milliseconds or seconds which is it right you don't know like yes is this 10 seconds or is this 10 milliseconds i don't know like (laughs) so well and then some and then some apis you work with give you one and some and others expect the other right but you're still just passing an int so it's not you have no idea you're intly typed <laughs> to borrow something from we should link that i don't know i'm gonna link the it's like jeff atwood's blog where he talked about all these fun like heisenberg and stringly typed and things like that yeah. um has nothing to do with what we were talking about except that it's fun to read yeah rust sounds great <laughs> yeah i think more people should check it out uh, i'm i'm more excited about it than any other new language especially because for me it, i don't have problems with a with like my workflow with rails apps i'm not you know i don't feel like i need something to be the next rails right now but there are other use cases where i do feel like there are problems that that need to be solved and this is a language that has a interesting and novel approach yeah i think that's ultimately probably why i i like like i look at haskell and i'm like that's interesting cool and i look at rust and i'm like that like everything we've talked about today sounds really cool i should check that out but like i'm not looking for something to fill a Rails shaped hole, like right. I like Rails, and like for as much as I complain about it, it does the job, and I know it pretty well. And that is the majority of the work that I get. Like that is all of the work <laughs> that I get, right? right? So realistically, I just need to find something to apply it to in a gainful manner, preferably. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. It's it, like that's why I'm asking, like, what are the types of problems that you think you would solve with this? And anything you were, you would consider writing C or C++, for me, that's basically nothing. Right. Um, <laughs> so. I mean, I, I, I do think, though, like, I, I would throw it in there if I, had, if I had any sort of part of my application where performance became a, ma- a crucial aspect of it, I would definitely reach for this language first right now, I would think. Are there, like, ORMs or anything like that? Could you build an, a database API? Presumably an, an API there's an ORM somewhere, yeah. Actually, yeah, I know of at least one, and there's a bunch of people who are trying. I think there's a lot of people who are still deciding, like, do we want the the general 
way that people work with this to be something that maps SQL to structs, or do we want it to be something that does uh, relational algebra and has a query builder and et cetera, et cetera? Right. And so there's still a lot of room for exploration there. But yeah, I mean, you can. The, the, I, think, the, I think that would be like the, the the biggest opportunity for me personally would probably be like if I got on a project where, and this is happening more and more, where it's like we want an Ember front end and a Rails back end, right? Where what they really mean is they want an Ember front end because they're interested in Ember and they want a back end to serve it an API. Yep. And they think that Rails is the way to do that. Or maybe they already do have Rails, but maybe we could say like, hey, let's, let's try this Rust thing. Like it's going to be, especially if the thing has like, if the app in question has performance concerns that are high up on their list of things to address. Yeah, no, definitely. There are other things too. Like I know there are people here like pushing for Elixir and mm-hmm. Phoenix for those types of reasons, right? Built on Erlang, which is also going to be super fast for API responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does already have pretty good tooling for building APIs, right? And Rust may well, as well. I'm just not familiar with them. And it, Well, I mean, it's, it's a young language, right? And that's also why the compiler is slow right now, but that's not necessarily because it has to be slow. It's because there's a lot of low-hanging performance fruit that haven't been dealt with yet it was it was just recently 1.0 like sometime in the last three months or something like that i feel like right that's that's what got me looking at it again because it got to 1.0 yeah Yeah, i mean i would hear like steve klabnik talk about it and he'd be like well things are changing a lot and i'd be like "Ah, okay well let me know but like that's kind of a double-edged sword like i'm never i'm not the type of person that's going to like contribute to a language to a language development right but like we've been having some conversations here about json api which recently went 1.0 and they're trying to use it on a project and like uh, there's a lot of frustrations and I think we should probably cover that in its own episode at some point. Yep. Um, but it's like, well, if we had used this six months ago, like we are in a position where we could have tried to influence this. Right. Um, but getting somebody to use it six months ago before it was 1.0 was like, well, I don't know. Things are changing a lot. Why would you want to use that right now? <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like, it's this dangerous thing. Well, the way, the way it works now is, uh, if you're, if you are on the quote unquote stable channel of rust, cause there's three channels, there's, there's, uh, and it uses the standard six weeks release train that every, <laughs> standard, pod, everything yeah. that doesn't, isn't rails seems to do now. Like that can be a whole episode too. talk about uh, <laughs> how we need an RFC process and a more frequently re- release cycle for rails. Um, but if you're on the stable channel, you cannot use unstable features. So there are certain compiler plugins you can't use. Then you won't be able to call certain functions or import certain modules. And then if you're on the beta or nightly channels, you can, but you still have to. If there's an unstable, if, if um, everything in the language is either marked as stable or unstable, and to use something that is marked as unstable, you have to explicitly say, "I want to use this unstable feature with a, a, a pragma statement at the top of your at the top of your program." And then that allows you to then start calling these unstable functions. Interesting unstable meaning you know that the api can change and once something's stable presumably there will be a path for breaking changes at some point but uh right now if something's stable it's gonna stay that way probably until i guess i guess stable things are up for grabs uh when they do a major version bump right uh yeah rust check it out (laughs) cool (laughs) what else anything else about rust i think we probably covered it i mean i'm sure we can come up with other stuff but yeah we've been going we got an episode here yeah Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 23. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. As always, thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.